Blog Talk Radio. cannot imagine how excited we are today to have an amazing woman, and I do say woman, as a screenwriter and producer who's done things like the Red Band Society, Boardwalk Empire, and so much more award-winning. But what I'm so excited about is the movie, The Good Lie, chronicling the lives of three young people from Sudan and helping us to appreciate our lives here in America and around the world. And she is an amazing woman. She has an amazing daughter. Yeah, I mean, she's just a lovely person who really has been taking her time to work on this movie to make a difference. A Good Lie comes out uh, worldwide starting tomorrow, October 3rd. Please go support this movie. We have Dare Danny, Kuth Weil, Emmanuel Jahl, uh, just Reese Witherspoon, Academy Award winning actress, so many people. And they are supporting something called the Good Lie Fund. And this is what I love for the lost boys and girls of Sudan. We don't know what it is to be a child soldier or to have our parents stripped from us in that way. You know, it's even the homeless person here has it better than that. They have more survival skills that will help them live than the people in that, in those areas that are war-torn. So without further ado, we're going to bring on Mr. Jay Logan from San Francisco. Jay, how are you today? I am wonderful, Gil. I'm out here in the Bay Area, San Francisco, like you said, and it's gorgeous, and we're just having a nice, nice day today. Kind of hot. Um, not as hot as yesterday, Gil, but, you know, it's nice and pretty. That You know, all I can tell you is I am really, really excited excited today, ecstatic, uh, you know, to have such an amazing woman who's going to be joining us. You know what I mean? Just freaking oh, amazing. Wow. Margaret yeah. Nagel, I mean, really, you know, a screenwriter. Oh, I, I think, ladies and gentlemen, I actually forgot to say her name. That's how excited we are. And just to let you know, listen, Giz, we're a radio show that chronicles the lives of others to inspire we're not here to find out what's the latest, this or that, but to make a difference and show you that the people who do things like Margaret Nagel, they're not just a name only. She's worked very, very hard to be where she's at, Jay. She really has. And sometimes we think things are so easy. And that's what we actually want you to know, that it's not easy. It takes something. You know what I mean, Jay? Yes, I understand. Yes, it does. So, you know, without further ado, Margaret's on a very tight schedule, of course, and we're going to call her right now, Jay, okay? So, Jay, would you share with our public while I go off to get Margaret and bring her on, and you can share with our public about some of the latest news that's going on. Would you mind doing that with our our parties here? Uh, Sure, We, we can definitely do that. Yes, I'd like everybody to know that, uh, we're still dealing with the 
Bent iPhone issue. It's called uh, Bentgate. Um, iPhone is, uh, they want to try to help this solve the situation. So they try to offer iPhone cases. So, and they're telling everybody, hey, don't put these iPhones in your back pocket. You know, put them in your front pocket. And I have a couple of friends that bought these iPhones. They really love the iPhone. And I really love Apple. Um, and they're wondering if Apple is going to um, pretty much uh, give them a new phone if it bends in their pocket. So Apple has a certain thing where they say, well, if it's not caused by us and you bent it, we won't pay for it. Um, but um, they're trying to help out and come up with these new Apple cases to protect your phone. So for those of you guys that have these wonderful devices, um, I just tend to say don't put it in your back pocket. Uh, it's made out of aluminum. It's real thin. Hi, Jay. And we have Mar- we, uh, Jay, we have Margaret right Nagel on the phone right now. We're ready to get started. Wonderful, wonderful. So, Margaret, welcome to our show, Listen, Give Live, where we chronicle the lives of special people like you who actually make a difference around the world, and we give back to society. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, if you don't mind, I know you're on a very tight uh, schedule. Would you mind if we get into the interview with you? Absolutely. Let's go. Okay, we're ready to go. Now, Margaret, we're going to ask you certain questions, and we just ask that you tailor it to the questions that we ask so that the audience, we don't give away too much too soon, all the goodies. Is that okay with you? Absolutely. Well, Margaret, you know, meeting you the other night at the screening of The Good Lie, first of all, the movie is amazing, and it's just, you know, we'll go into that later, but and you know, and you're supporting the Good Life Fund. It's just amazing. But we actually want to start with you in a very, you know, different way. You know, mm-hmm. one of the things that we want to ask you is you're a screenwriter and a producer, okay? And and many of our young people think it's so easy. You just go into Hollywood and you become a scriptwriter, screenwriter, producer, and it's just oh, just a piece of cake. And we would love you to share with our youth, you know, what? how you got started in becoming a screenwriter and a producer. You know, what was your road to that? Um, it was actually a really long road, and it, it took me a very, very long time. And um, I was an actress. I was never encouraged. I, I, really, I realized now I was always a writer. I was always a storyteller. But that um, where I went to school and, and the, the way I was educated, I was never encouraged to do something like that. And I didn't see a lot of women who were uh, doing that. Um, and so I became an actress because that was the easiest way to tell those stories using another person's writing. But what was interesting about being an actress, and I was a theater actress in New York, and I was on the TV show My So-Called Life, was that I was working with really talented writers intimately because I was inhabiting their work. I was living inside their work. I was covering what their work meant as it went out into the world because that was my job as an actor to work with that writing. So I was actually teaching myself all about dramatic writing. And the program I went to, I studied at Northwestern University, they have a program called Performance Studies. And Performance Studies asks you to take, uh, for example, the novel To Kill a Mockingbird and adapt it and perform it. So you're always taking material and adapting and performing it. And it was that adapting part it was teaching me how to write as well. So I put the two together, and I wrote, uh, I, while I was on my so-called life, Winnie Holtzman, who created the show, she created the musical Wicked that's running on Broadway, uh, said, you know, I, I think you're a closeted writer. And I only say that because Winnie Holtzman was also an actress, 
to begin with, and she goes, because I was a closeted writer, and I really encourage you to write. So, uh, and I realized that I had just needed someone to give me permission. Oftentimes, a writer needs permission to write. It's mm. a very common thread in the evolution of a writer, getting permission. And so I started to write, and I wrote a spec script uh, of a movie uh, that I wanted, you know, I, and it was called Warm Springs. And ultimately, the spec script was made, but when I went in, that was the thing that sort of broke it open for me. And I spent four years working on the spec script because I knew that I would never get a second read from anyone. If the script wasn't ready uh, and it went to someone very high up, I wasn't going to get a second chance. I needed to stay with it and work with it over and over and over and do many, many drafts to get it better. And I taught myself um, how to write a screenplay. I took Robert McKee's story class, which was great. It was a famous screenwriting class that he teaches all over the world, and I encourage anyone who tells stories to take that class. But um, I just, I, I felt that I, I had to get it right the first time because I was already uh, late in the game, and I was a late bloomer. So, and luckily, I, I did finally get the script right, and the script got me an agent immediately. Uh, within hours of going into an agency, I, they called and they said, we'll work with you. And I heard about this Lost Boys project, and while I was writing my screenplay, I was supporting myself by selling purses. I had a bag business, and I was called the Bag Lady. And two of my <laughs> yeah, and so uh, and two two of my support, and I sold to law firms, I sold to uh, agency people, and no one knew that I was a writer. I was just the lady that sold the bags, and I would go do office visits and sell bags to people, and. Two of my suppliers were guys, my wholesalers were from Senegal. And their they, their family had gone to Senegal from Sudan uh, in the 1950s crisis that was in Sudan. And I was watching them, you know, adapt to being in Los Angeles, living in America. One of, they were two guys, one had three wives. One had one wife and was deciding to do it the American way and had one wife. His grandfather had been a chief. He had... Uh, who had like 11 or 14 wives. And it was really interesting watching them adjust. And I, I became to Thanksgiving. We became very close. And so when I heard there was an open assignment at Paramount for a project about the Lost Boys of the Sudan, I called my agent. And I said, could I go in on it? And he was like, that's, there's seen some pretty big famous writers with big credits. And I don't think that's going to, they're going to see you. And in the meantime, I used one of my, my law firm contacts. I said, do you have that search engine that law firms have for, you know, journalism. And she said, yes. And I said, would you let me use it and print out every article there's ever been written about Sudan in the 20th century, basically? And she said, sure. And so I put together these massive binders of every single piece of information I could find written down, because there's a lot about Sudan that is not written down. And everything I could find, I even found the one Sudanese professor at Yale uh, an incredible guy um, whose last name is Dang, who had written sort of an anthropological anthropological book about Sudan. And um, I kept calling my agent saying, I'll meet the intern at Outlaw Films. I'll meet whoever is the most basic person. And finally I got in for a general meeting with a low-level development executive, and I had the entire movie planned out in my pitch because, again, I figured I had one shot. And he thought he was having a general meeting, and I pitched him a, a movie about two brothers named Theo and Mamere, and Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, the entire story. And he said, stay here, don't leave the office, and you're going to pitch this to everyone in, in this office. And by the end of the day, I was 
pitching it to the president of the company, Robert Neumeier, who produced Sex, Lies, and Videotape and Training Day, and I uh, got the job. Wow. All I can say is, wow. Uh, Jay, I know you had a question for Margaret. Yes, I, I had a question. Hi, Margaret. Hi. I wanted to... I wanted, to, I wanted to ask you, now this is a different kind of question. I see that you're from Berkeley, California, if I'm correct. Yeah. Um, were you a yellow jacket? And if not, what high school did you attend? Well, you know, we moved, and so I didn't go to high school, but I went to Little Hillside, and then uh, we moved right down to the campus, and I went to uh, Emerson, and then they changed the lines in the school, the sort of the busing, and I was uh, went to John Muir, and then uh, wow. and then and then so I went to three different schools, and this was, you know, I grew up looking at the entire movement that was happening in Berkeley outside my window from my stroller. I watched it from. Wow. I used to take my allowance and go down to Telegraph Avenue in first grade, and I would buy scraps of leather and I would glue them together, and I would like this the whole free speech movement, the whole anti-war movement was happening outside my door. When uh, People's Park was tear-gassed, my element in the National Guard came, they came to my elementary school, tear-gassed my, our elementary school, and we were all let out into the street of those riots of Berkeley children, and uh, I had to walk home with the tear gas. So I grew up in an environment where people fought for what they believed in. The, there was a really high level of fairness and what is justice, what is injustice. And I think that um, that got bred into me. I've been so waiting for someone to ask me the Berkeley question because I think it's, it's really funny. I, I, I think it's essential to who I am and why I don't take no for an answer. If I think wow. something's right, wow. I don't ever give up. So, And, for example, this Lost Boys movie took 11 years to get made. I got that job in 2003. Wow. It took 11 years. So, the, I, so I think the Berkeley in me is, is a very helpful thing, ultimately. Wow. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would, I would say so, too. We love, we love this because there are young women and men, not just women, but men listening to you, and, and young people don't realize what it's going to take, and they can hear that determination. So thank you for sharing that part of yourself. We'd also like to I also have a question for you that I think you're going to chuckle at. Would you let us know a little bit about your great auntie, the dance pioneer, Margaret Newell, H. Hadubler, I believe it is? Yeah, Margaret Dubler. She was the, she was amazing. She, I'm named for her. She's my great aunt, and she was a genius. And she and her brother, who was my grandfather, they both, you know, Margaret Dubler created the term modern dance. She's the first professor of modern dance in the world. Wow. She, cre- she created the first dance major at University of Wisconsin, which all the dance programs at university level are based on. She believed that modern dance, she went over to Europe, she went to, Columbia, she went to Wisconsin, she went to Columbia, she went over to Europe, and she came back and she realized that this art form, modern dance, would never survive in this country if, if teachers weren't trained to teach it. So she decided to, for it to move forward as an art form, that's what she would do. And so she created this this program at Madison, and you know she was always getting like she she was fired when she cut her hair short. She married a much younger man, uh, Wayne Claxton, who's a great artist and an art teacher. She was always on the cutting edge of thought. She was her students adored her in a Halpern's program. She has a lot of Agnes DeMille credits modern dance existing in in our 
culture to Margaret Dobler, my aunt. And uh, so she, and she's much older, like her brother, uh, Francis Dobler, my grandfather, he was a linguist and then he, he spoke six languages. He got his PhD in mathematics and then decided he wanted to go to Harvard and be an MD. And he studied under Cushing, who was the first brain surgeon. And my, my grandfather was also an inventor and their father was an inventor. And so it's a very eccentric line of the family, but very free thinking and everybody taught to really use their brain and think for themselves. And it took a long time for me to realize this sounds strange. I, I grew up with a brother who was retarded and disabled from a car accident. And it took me a long time to realize I was as smart as I was because of my brother uh, losing so much brain capacity. I was never encouraged to be as smart as I was because it was opening a wound. So it's a very, it's, uh, I've talked to a lot of siblings of disabled, mentally disabled people where your intelligence is, it can't really be celebrated. It's almost mourned because it's, it's what that other person, it's a reflection of what my brother lost. So, wow. it's a, yeah, it's, it's, it's complicated. But, yeah, she was amazing. That's, a, that's a amazing what you just said. You know, that, that opens up my eyes. I, could, I can't imagine that because, you know, you don't want to outdo your brother or your family member. Right. So they want to kind of subdue you. That is, that's a whole other topic. Maybe <laughs> that's incredible. Um, well, it is an interesting topic. And, and, and I want to go back to the Berkeley it sort of relates to this. The reason I didn't go to high school in Berkeley, I applied to Berkeley University when I was 16, and I got in. And so I went to Berkeley in the morning for high school, and then I went to Piedmont High School in the afternoon. So I, But I secretly applied to Berkeley, and I knew I was so bored in high school, and I just did it on my own. didn't tell my parents until I got in. Because it was, I had to kind of keep my intelligence and, and my ambition on the down low because of the situation. So it's interesting. And I, so I, I, got, I actually did get to go to Berkeley. I didn't finish college there in Northwestern, but I went there for a couple of years. Wow. That's such a, what the, such a creative city. That's why I, I was wondering about that because you're so creative. And I, I just knew you had to be from Berkeley because that city is just so creative. It's just a wonderful city. My, it is my a creative city. My other question is, could you name two of your top favorite script writers and producers and why they are your favorites? Well, um, I have to say Patty Chayefsky because he he was an, a brilliant, angry screenwriter in that he, you know, the, the script of Network could have been written today. He, um, he had a, his, his characters just sang with their individuality, and they, they were always, you know, struggling with the deeper parts of themselves and the, the flawed parts of themselves, which I think all of us always are. And um, I also, um, I, love, I love the movies of Sidney Lumet. They aren't written by Sidney Lumet, but I look at a movie like The Verdict with Paul Newman, and which is written by David Mamet. I don't. It's an extraordinary tale. It's based on a novel, The Verdict, and that's a movie that I always look to um, always as a leading man. Paul Newman is an extraordinary, it's an extraordinary leading man performance. It's a, it's a movie that could also be made right now. It's so modern. It sort of transcends um, the time period it's in. I urge people to go look at that all the time. Um, and I love the Coen brothers and love, 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 love the way they tell story because they're not noted by a studio or a network, so their stuff comes 
I mean, all of us wish that, but they, they have a kind of artistic freedom. They're not humanists, but in, but I do think Marge and Fargo is one of the most human, humanistic uh, characters they ever created. It's, it's a great, great female character. And I always look at Marge, played by, brilliantly by Frances McDormand, when I start any pro- project because she's unapologetically who she is. And, uh, and I uh-huh. feel like she's a real woman that I would know. Just and I tried so hard in the good light to create a female character that was unapologetically who she was, and not looking to someone else to find her identity. Oh, I love this. This is a whole other. Oh my God, this is a whole other uh, segment. But I know we don't have much time. We have two questions or two to three questions left for you. Is that okay, Margaret? Sure, sure. Okay, so Margaret, my question is all wrapped in one. Actually, I want to know. Have you visited Sudan, and and whether you visited Sudan or any other part of Africa, what did you learn while doing this movie, before doing this movie, and what are you grateful for after doing this movie, for all of those experiences? Well, um, I didn't visit, I've never been there. I've never been to Africa. I've never been to Sudan. And one of the reasons I couldn't go to South Sudan now, I mean, South Sudan became a country while I was in the 11 years I was trying to get this movie made. Um because the UN can't protect you there, and uh, you can't. And I'm a teeny little woman, and I just. Mar- Margaret, I'm know. sorry. We're not here. You're a little off. We don't hear you that clearly. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yes, it's great. Okay. So I have not been to Sudan or South Sudan because the UN cannot protect you there. There's no. So it's not considered a safe place to go as an American. So what I have is I have. Uh, a filmmaker that did go to Sudan gave me hours of his footage of a documentary that he was never able to make. And so, and I've met uh, so many people from Sudan, but I fortunately have not been able to go there. And the project, um, the people of Sudan, the people of South Sudan, they're extraordinary people. Uh, they're remarkable people. They are uh, some of the best people I've ever met. I, I feel more connected to them. It's sort of, it's sort of funny. They're, Children that survive traumatic events uh, with this sort of never give up approach that in a strange way I felt a certain kinship to them. And it's been an extraordinary, I mean, this if this is the only thing I ever accomplish in my life, I'm okay with that. Because this is, I feel like the power of this film to go on and open people up emotionally to what is happening in South Sudan and to one another. You know, I grew up in Berkeley where people looked at each other and talked to each other and, and it was okay to argue with one each other and it was okay to love one another and help a stranger. And we live in a world where we're so cut off from one another. It's just, it's a tragedy. And we're sharing this planet and we're allowing this bullshit, pardon me, you can believe me, to, to, to like, I think everybody's so lonely and cut off and I think that, the power of film is the power to cut through language, to cut through religion, to cut through politics. Um, I worked really hard to make this a film where I'm not coming down on one side or the other. I'm just trying to open people up. That's the goal of the film, by telling the true story. And I'm not pushing one side or the other. And this director, Philippe Fallardot, did the story with such restraint so that you can be a non-believer and a believer, you can be political and apolitical, but we all know what's right and what's wrong. We all know that. We, we, and we're all capable of, 
of of doing more in the best way. And so the film is, you know, I've worked really carefully, really hard on this film and protected this film and and not let people make the film who were going to go the wrong way with it or use it as as a tool for something. So the t- and the tone of the film is funny because when do you laugh harder? I mean, I I've never laughed harder in my life than at the very worst moments. All you can do is laugh. Yeah. And there's there's tr- yeah, I mean, seriously. I'll go to my therapist and I'll say, "Oh, my, my this year my my husband had cancer surgery and on the day of the surgery my mother fell and broke her neck." And we sat there in therapy and laughed because there's nothing you can do. Like when it you just and this film there's like laughter all through the film. The first line in the movie is a laugh. The first spoken line in the movie gets a huge laugh, and um, they're leaving the refugee camp to get on an airplane. So this I'm trying to transcend and and write something as true to what happened, but also reach out to people in any language to feel this film and and experience this film. Margaret, you did do that because it hit me, oh, my God, um, and I'm trying not to cry here on air because there's a place in that film that hit me so hard. You know, it's okay to cry on air. It's okay to cry. People keep coming out saying, and I'm like, everybody needs to cry. Come on, everybody cry more. We'll do much better as as Uh, a world. Well, Jay will tell you that I'm I'm strong-willed like you, but I do cry. And there's a place in that film that, I mean, I cried in some parts of the film, but there's a place that is so human that it, you must be a robot if you don't feel it. Well, there's always some critics who are robots, but that's okay. I feel bad for them. You know, it's like people people walk out of the film and they're, it's, it's not meant to make you cry, but you can't when you see the courage and the heroism and it's so simple and it's not, you know, trumped up in anything. It's so real. It's hard, hard not to feel something. I would, I would hope, you know. Well, yeah, that's all I can say. Um, I want to. Um, I, I, yeah, Gail, I, did, I, I had a question, but it's bunched in two questions. Why is the movie titled "The Good Lie"? And and also, I want to know you're a mother, and I'm wondering how do you juggle both that and your career? Well, my kids come first. That's just. That's how that goes and everything else. But my kids are older now so that um, I, I've been able to devote myself uh, the last two years solely to to my work. And, and my, I also have an incredible husband who is uh, works at home. So we've been able to, you know, it's, it's better to make sure your kids are successful and happy and, and well-adjusted. And, and my kids have grown up with this movie. They've grown up with this story, I have to say, and, and the Lost Boys. And it's been, a, it's been great for them, too. And why wow. is the title of the movie, what, what does the title mean, The Good Lie? What is, can you give us uh, a well, uh, defining? Um, because there are such things as good lies, for sure. And because part of their culture has a taboo against lying. And um, um, in they go to Kansas City, Missouri, and, and they read Huck Finn. And I've always thought it was so interesting uh, for these Sudanese kids being introduced to race the way it is in the United States. A whole other topic for another day, but I, I think that we <laughs> as a culture are so behind talking about race and, and really getting to the forefront of race in our culture and how it all works. But... Um, I think it's it's everywhere, and 
so one of the shocks was coming here and discovering that African-Americans were treated differently. And I had uh, one of the characters, he reads Huck Finn, which is one of the great works of America. It's sort of the beginning of American literature in a way, uh, along with Nathaniel Hawthorne. And he discovers um, The Good Lie, which Jim and Huck, Huck tells a good lie to protect Jim. And that's all I'll say, but I, I, it rooted back to Missouri. It rooted back to race in this country. And it, it rooted into great American literature, which I'm always pro, and, um, and a bigger discussion to be had, you know, away from the film. I'm always trying to, to spark a discussion in that area. Wow. Wow. Please. Well, you know, um, we have just these two last questions, and my question is this. I met you and your daughter, okay? And I found you to be one of the most down-to-earth, really real people because I've been in the industry with Warner Brothers myself for years. And one of the things I want to know is two things. I'd love to see you and your daughter, and you know I said this, and I'm going to say it live on the air. I'd love to see you and your daughter do something together because I think if this movie is phenomenal, bringing you and your daughter together would be amazing. And secondly, not a question of what the industry wants to hear, Margaret. I want to know what's important to you in your life and, and, and how would you like to change the world if you could? If I could, the humanitarian situation in these refugee camps in South Sudan, I could, I could be happy for the rest of my life if I could. It's hard for me to say. I just feel so deeply about what these people are going through. And um, that would that would push it forward. And I have a project about Eleanor Roosevelt that I've been working on for years. And it's a very hard thing to get a project made about Eleanor Roosevelt because she's not pretty, if you could believe it. And uh, it's a, she's so brilliant, such a great, you know, she coined the phrase human rights, Eleanor Roosevelt. She's one of, her mind was remarkable. She had a remarkable mind and she was ahead on everything. And so if I could help with South Sudan and help and make the teachings and the work of Eleanor Roosevelt uh, meaningful to new generations of people, because I just know that they would guide and inspire people in a, in a positive way. And then my daughter and I are planning to write something together. She's a writer as well, and we're just going to go to work and figure out what that is after The Good Lie is up and running and uh, hopefully, you know, doing its job. So. And, and what the last thing is what's important to you. What, what do you love about your life and what's important to you outside of this world of movies and all of that? What's important to me is that we're fair and, and kind to one another. And what's important to me is that we don't overlook the suffering of other people. And what's important to me is that we as a country focus our resources to help people. That's, that's what's important to me, and that's always in my family. My family's important to me, but that's always, that goes without saying. Wow. And then so Jay has one last question for you, and then we'll just thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you. I, I, I want, my last question is the cast. Are you happy with the cast, Reese Weatherspoon, and, and all the other people that's part of Emmanuel Jaw? What do you think about the cast that's bringing your movie to life? Well, we've become a family, this cast, and if you see us together, it's pretty hilarious. Um, Reese, uh, I wrote the part with Reese in mine 11 years ago. She uh, was 20 pages into the script. Her character was nowhere near coming on the screen, and she said yes without even finishing and getting into her character. She wanted to be a part of this. So for all the right reasons, 
she came on to this project, and she's she's incredible in the film. I have to say, she's incredible. Corey Stoll, who is a great actor, I've been wanting to cast Corey Stoll on my last three projects and couldn't get him, so I was so so happy. And then all our actors are refugees of war. Arnold O'Sang, he was able to escape to London. His father was Sudanese and was killed when he was two. Um, he's a, a trained actor. He's he's been working since he was six years old. He plays my mare. He's amazing. Um, and then Kuth Wheel, who plays the lost girl, Abital, she was born in a refugee camp in Ethiopia. Her parents were UN workers for the Sudan. She walked back and forth between Ethiopia and Sudan. Her father was murdered when she was five. Um, her brother was a lost boy. She was able to come to Minnesota. She's got her uh, degree in psychology. I mean, she's amazing, and she's such a good actress. She holds her own with Reese Witherspoon on screen. I, I mean, you just can't believe she's, She's transcendent. Gare Diwani is uh, a humanitarian. He was born in a refugee camp. He was a child soldier. He uh, got out when he was a teenager and went to Iowa and then Indiana and then to L.A. and he played basketball. And he just found his mother after 18 years in the refugee camp in Kakuma. They both thought the other was dead and they were reunited. And then Emmanuel Jahl, the musician, also... Uh, lectures all over the world on humanitarian issues, was a child soldier. He lost his entire family. He's uh, he's an artist. He lives in Toronto. He's an incredible, he never acted before. He, he acted in one thing, had a small part, and uh, he's he's very powerful playing Paul, the, the boy with the most post-traumatic stress of all of them. And Gare Tawani, he's an I Heart Huckabee uh, that David O. Russell uh, directed and Gare. Ten years ago, we met Gare. He was the first actor we met for this project. And then uh, the producer died. The project was put in turnaround. All that kind of stuff. Finally got it out, and Gare came back, and we were able to cast Gare, which was he's Gare is extraordinary. Gare's amazing. So I feel so lucky to be able to work and travel. And our director, Philippe Fallardeau, is French Canadian and he used beautiful restraint. He was formerly a documentary filmmaker and had been making a documentary in CDN in 94 and been chased out by gunfire and never able to finish that documentary. So he felt this very strong commitment to finding that project that allowed him to tell the story of South Sudan. So we feel, you know, it's very hard for the media to cover South Sudan, and they're in a major humanitarian crisis. Civil war has broken out there since December. So uh, our hope is that this is a good time to raise awareness for the film. And we played it in D.C., and Samantha Power has seen it twice, and uh, hopefully Obama's going to be seeing it soon. And so we're, it's bigger than a movie for all of us. It's much bigger. Well, what we want to say is to Obama, to former President Clinton for the Clinton Global Initiative, and anyone else listening, that it's important that you not only see this movie, but you support Margaret and the cast members um, in what they're doing with the Good Life Fund. And, and lastly, Emmanuel Jahl, you know we love you. We know you well. Cool. thank you for being with us. And, Margaret, I know I said this was the last question, but there's something that we just had a youth uh, ask us a question here. What sure. They wanted they want to ask us this last question. They said you've been in television and you've been, you know, doing the big screen movie, okay? Um, they wanted to know what the difference is, and then I wanted to say I'd love to see you and Shonda Rhimes write something together. I think it would be so powerful the television couldn't hold it. Well, Shonda and I are, are working together now, but we've created a diversity committee within the Writers Guild of America to try and get 
women more opportunities than African Americans and Asians because it's a very white male organization and they're trying really hard to change it. And so Sean and I, in fact, I'm supposed to phone into a meeting next week with her since I'm going to be on the East Coast promoting the film. Uh, We're trying to change things from within because we we need to change things so that more diverse voices are are out there writing and telling our stories because we need everybody's stories. Right. And um, as far as the TV and film thing, they're so different. I can't even begin. It's like it's having uh, it's like having two husbands. It's like having a double life. <laughs> it is. It's not. There's and it's a whole other phone call. And tell tell that person who asked the question to contact me on Facebook or Twitter, and and we'll talk about it. But it's 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 like I have two different careers simultaneously, and they do not cross <laughs> over. Got it. Well, we thank you, Margaret, for your time, and we will support you as much as give in any way that we can. Well, you guys are awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate this, <laughs> and and we'll do it. Let's do it another time. And uh, when I'm not on the schedule, I'd love to. Maybe when the movie's been out for a while. Thank you. We can so talk great. about an update. <laughs> Have a blessed day. All right. Okay. Thanks, guys. Bye. <laughs> thanks, Bye. Thank you. Bye. Well, Jay, that was amazing. Wow! She's so real. I love it. Yes. And audience members, I mean, this was amazing to have a woman like this who's so down to earth. And I think I have to sometimes credit myself and Jay because we look for people who are very, very down to earth and, and who really mean what they say and say what they do. And, you know, Emmanuel Jahl, I can't say enough for this guy, he has a sense of humor that's entwined with an intensity that you would not understand. Carrie Flamia, who was his assistant and, and runs his label, was on with us last week. Very straightforward, as you heard her. So we're just grateful uh, to everyone for the support of Listen Give, and we have some things coming up where we ask you to be a part of what we're doing. Uh, we have so many things coming up, and we are so, so grateful to Warner Brothers for this movie Margaret Nagel for hanging in there and creating this and having the vision to see it through. Garrett Duani, Arnold Osang, Kuth Weil, Emmanuel Jahl, Carrie Flamia with Emmanuel Jahl, okay? We are grateful. And I want to uh, mention some other people that are amazing. There is a young lady by the name of Angelina who is very good friends with Kuth Weil. We will support you in your acting. There is uh, Mary Malik, who is also a woman who makes a difference for Sudan, okay, and her husband. These are all people who care and are giving back. And with that said, Jay, we thank you for the show today. This was a special show. And, folks, we are going to sign out with I Want Your Number, because we do want your number. And if you want to email us, with any people that you would like to have on the Listen Give Live show or for sponsorship opportunities, please reach out to us at listengive at gmail.com. Again, that's listengive at gmail.com, and you can catch us in San Francisco, New York, or London worldwide. Thank you, everyone. Jay, it's always good being with you, my friend and partner and colleague in crime. Talk to you later, guys. <laughs>